teaching pop and R&B and musical theater. That little girl that was singing around in churches in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, who was told that she had a lot of talent and no skill, that little girl who was inspired by the um, popular voices of her time, um, Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight, who were the voices that I found my own voice through, but I still didn't understand what being a skilled singer meant. And I remember her. And so I knew that if she didn't have skill, if she didn't understand what it was to play the instrument called voice, then there is probably another population of gospel, of R&B, of pop singers that also don't quite understand how to effectively play the instrument and not just play it on inherent talent, but play it on a skillful level as well. Opera singers always get the best of the best. I was afforded the best vocal coaches on the undergrad and graduate level. Mm. I had a legendary coach on the graduate level, Margaret Harshaw, who was quintessential in developing my voice as an opera singer. So opera singers and students of opera always are afforded wonderful singing teachers. I wasn't sure if popular singers in R&B, in pop, and in gospel were also afforded that. I knew that there were coaches in the field that existed, but I wasn't sure of, you know, if the coaches were skilled pedagogically, if they understood vocal anatomy, if they understood physiology, vocal acoustics, um, if they understood how to protect the instrument despite the fact that they're singing a very rigorous art form like gospel, like um, pop, like rock, like R&B. I wasn't sure um, who was out there as coaches that understood that you don't have to compromise the sound, the style of R&B, of pop, of gospel, of rock in order to do it well. And that was my platform. I wanted gospel singers to still sing, sound like gospel singers. I wanted R&B singers to still sound like R&B singers and pop singers to still, you know, keep the authenticity of the genre intact, but have enough skill to protect your instrument for the long haul. And that was what was happening in a lot of the contemporary art forms. Singers were wearing down their vocals to the point where they were, the voices were becoming so compromised that a voice that, you know, was wonderful early in their popular R&B career was, you know, a shadow of itself in less than 10 years into that career. I mean, we could probably think of voices now that started out sounding a certain way and you know 10 years in mm -hmm. the wear and tear on the mechanism is so so intense that the voice is a shadow of what it once was i mean we we can think of popular singers within our recent history who whose ends vocally um were not really ideal mm. and i and i'm very fortunate to have you know, I pride myself on the fact that, you know, I teach a methodology where singers can be as authentic in their chosen art form as, as, as they want to be, and the instrument still remain viable. I think that's some of the fear um, I, of taking voice lessons for singers who have been doing it for a while. They feel like they've got their sound, and they're scared that taking lessons is going to change that in some way. They won't know what they're doing and all that kind of thing. What do you, what's your advice? What are your thoughts about that? I hear that quite a bit and students, um, singers have come to me um, quite a bit um, with that, con that concern. Um, and again, you know, I pride myself on wanting you to be as authentic as possible 
Um, my biggest, the answer to that, um, Jamila, is primarily many times what ends up driving those singers that you just um, mentioned who fear vocal training would cause them to lose the authenticity that they've discovered in their own sound is that something in the pathology of the voice begins to go awry. Mm. And that's usually when my phone rings, when a nodule or a polyp happens, when scar tissue begins to build up, when the voice, because the singer has been singing beautifully, but hasn't maintained a balance in the sound, um, on some level, the voice is um, um, losing you know, the higher registration or the middle registration is becoming less robust. Um, the singer is chronically hoarse. Typically, when those singers come to me, when they begin to experience those types of issues, mm -hmm. that's when my phone rings, um, which is sad because I would much rather maintain you in your truth then fix you when you're broken. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. But ultimately, because of that fear that you just suggested, mm -hmm. they only seek me out or someone like me when the instrument is no longer viable. Mm. When, and usually it's wear and tear in the wrong ways. If we're dealing with a human instrument, not a man-made man instrument. We're dealing with an instrument that you can't go to the guitar center and get a new one. Um, so it is a muscular instrument. It's an anatomical instrument. And you have to understand on that level how those muscles function and what the limitations are on that musculature in either direction, in the extreme um, higher registrations of the voice and the extreme lower registrations, we're dealing with very sophisticated muscles. And I like for singers to understand that because we're dealing with a muscular instrument, the wear and tear has to happen in such a way because it will wear down. I mean, you know, I've been singing for nearly 40 years and, you know, my instrument is not what it was when I was 20. Um, the instrument will wear down, but it should wear down like fine wine. It shouldn't get to the point where it's just so depleted that the sound is just not worthwhile anymore. It should age beautifully. Um, Sometimes singers might find as the instrument is aging that they might have to lower keys of songs. Sometimes they might find that arrangements have to change as they get closer to, you know, 30-year career, 40-year career. But for the most part, the instrument can remain viable and beautiful for however long a singer desires to sing. Utter complete vocal breakdown due to just vocal mismanagement and singers just winging it um, for decades. You know, ultimately, you know, the voice is a very forgiving instrument, but ultimately, you know, it will, you know, it'll have its moments where it's like, I can't rebound anymore. This is, I've, I've reached my limit. I actually don't enjoy it when I get phone calls from singers in tears saying, you know, I went to the otolaryngologist and I have a polyp or I have a nodule or, you know, I've lost, you know, the, I've lost, you know, an, a complete octave of my voice or my middle range is completely gone. That actually means I have to rebuild this instrument again. And it may not even come back in the same manner that it was prior to the vocal injury. Um, so I say to singers who say, you know, I don't want my voice to, I don't want a vocal co coach to change who I am or to change my sound. Um, I can only speak for myself. I um, started my company, like I said, over 20 years ago because I loved the authenticity 
of gospel, of R&B, of pop. And I wanted that sound and the authenticity of that music to remain intact. And I wanted the human instruments, the singers who were creating this music to remain whole vocally by giving them tools to maintain the health of the instrument while they were still doing what they do in their truth. What are some of your favorite books on sing, singing technique and pedagogy and all of that? Oh my goodness, geez. <laughs> I feel like I've read them all. Mm. Recently, there's a lot of books on cross training um, that I enjoy um, because that's what I do. I, I cross train um, singers to be able to do multiple styles of singing. So I love um, the Norman's um, um, Spivy and Mary Saunders Barton book, um, which is a very easy, quick read um, for anyone who wants to embark on this style of training. Um, the father of, of, of vocal pedagogy, Manuel Garcia, um, has um, wonderful books um, that I read um, years ago that are part of my vocal library. Um, of course, Richard Miller, anything Richard Miller, again, um, one of our fathers of modern vocal pedagogy, anything Richard Miller has written, I've probably devoured. Um, the structure of singing, I think I've read through more times than I can count. Um, it is for me the Bible. <laughs> um, and and, um, and um, the vocal athlete is another great book um, that I recommend singers to read. Um, I mean, I could go on and on so many. My, my colleague at USC, uh, Professor Lynn Helding, just wrote a wonderful, wonderful book um, uh, on the, the, the emotions around being an artist and, and and what that needs to look like as far as bringing the, um, balancing the emotional, mental, and physiological um, 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 self mm. in your artistry, um, which is something artists struggle with um, mm. as well, how to be emotionally present, um, you know, especially in a climate such as this, how can artists still remain emotionally present um, when so many shows and so many performances are being canceled mm -hmm. due to, um, you know, COVID-19 and this um, pandemic that we're in the midst of. So, um, you know, there's just so many books out there, more than, you know, we have in this, in, this, in this time frame. And I think I've devoured most of them. And out of it, I have taken a little bit of a nugget from each of them, each of the, the books and the authors that I've, I've, I've mentioned. And, and again, developed my own pedagogical approach to training, you know, pop, rock, R&B, musical theater, singers. Um, I, you know, extra certifications I did to enhance my own undergrad and graduate degrees. And again, vocal physiology, comparative vocal study, um, vocal acoustics, um, understanding the Broadway voice versus the pop voice mm. versus the um, 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 you know, the, uh, uh, and the different styles of Broadway, but Broadway has evolved from uh, a more classical um, platform to a more contemporary platform. And you have a lot of Broadway singers now who trained classically, um, but see now that Broadway is now beginning to pivot into a contemporary vocal sound and they are needing to relearn, to readjust. Mm -hmm. And you have some pop singers who want to go into that Broadway world, mm. but need to, again, understand that certain pop sounds don't translate over into a contemporary um, Broadway sound. Um, so all of those um, training tools is something that I've prided myself on within the last 10 years of, of, of me just, again, really... Um, dissecting the human voice on, mm. the, on the myriad of levels. 
how did you kind of navigate your education? Did you have so much? I mean, it's so impressive, everything that you have, all the tools you've got under your belt. How did you, do you have a mentor? Was it also, you know, teaching and thinking, I need to know this, I need to understand this better. Was it a combination of that or? I did not have mentors. I was the first, at least to my knowledge, in my inner circle to embark upon this mm. um, in this capacity. So there was no one ahead of me right. doing this. I had, and still do, have a lot of friends who are very close to me who were embarking on operatic careers around the same time as I was. But they all went in their various different directions. And I took this path but I didn't have any mentors. So um, it was for me just an acute awareness that I needed to know more and the desire to know more. So I actually, again, a lot of this took place in Chicago. I started just talking to doctors. I remember talking to wonderful doctors of otolaryngology in Chicago, Dr. Um, Robert Bastian, uh, the Bastian Institute in Chicago, um, Dr. Stephen Sims, who's a friend and colleague, because I wanted to get information about the anatomy of the human voice and what and how that anatomy functioned um, when it was functioning well, when it wasn't functioning well, um, reading a lot. Um, I did a lot of online certification through the New York uh, Singing Teachers Association. Um, again, just really absorbing, you know, as much as possible. Um, you know, I can't say that there was anyone in my immediate circle. I, sh I know now, 20 years later, that there were educators like myself and pedagogues and singing teachers out there also embarking upon the same re-education as I was. I just didn't have access to them because I didn't know about them. Um, they weren't in my inner circle. Um, but I, you know, so, mm. and, and now I'm called on to mentor, which is wonderful. Mm. Uh, I am that to young singing coaches, what I probably wished I had for myself 20 years ago. And, um, but someone always has to kind of go ahead and be the first. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I mentor a lot of young coaches who are beginning to open up their studios. And I, and I so impress upon them, make sure that this studio is a cross training studio. Don't make it one dimensional. Don't just train pop. Don't just train opera. Don't just train musical theater. Have the facility to train them all mm. and keep them all authentic in their chosen art form, you know, mm -hmm. and give them the facility, though, to pivot into pop if they are musical theater or if they're musical theater to pivot into R&B. Give them the facility to pivot. Um, Give them the, the knowledge and the awareness. Be that kind of singer or that kind of coach, excuse me, that understands it so well that you can take an R&B singer and give them the tools they need to pivot and put them on a Broadway stage. That you can take a pop singer and give them the tools they need to pivot and to go on a, a classical stage. Mm because the voice is that kind of instrument. It is a flexible instrument. It can do a myriad of things. But these studios today that are opening, they have to be all encompassing. Mm. Gone are the days of studios that are just teaching one pedagogical approach. That, will, that is becoming antiquated. And ultimately those coaches will find they won't have much business. One of my greatest accomplishments was the relationship I developed with the Recording Academy. Uh, about 15 years ago in Chicago, 
um, the Recording Academy. I sat on the board of governors for the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. And this was the, my cry to the, the, to the Recording Academy, particularly in the, the part of the Recording Academy for Grammy in the schools, um, which a lot of people, sometimes they think of the Recording Academy as just the Grammy show. But the Recording Academy has such a, a large um, philanthropic outreach to education. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be on the board of governors during that time. Mm -hmm. And this was, again, my battle cry to educators in schools. Our kids may not want to be opera singers. Our kids may want to do pop or musical theater. Mm -hmm. You have to have the facility to teach that con these concept to concepts to our kids. Mm -hmm. um, that ultimately led to me being um, the first coach for Grammy Camp um, and helping to implement that 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 concept of Grammy Camp um, nearly um, 20 years ago. Um, now, Grammy Camp is a huge educational outlet for kids around the world. Um, but um, 20 years ago, when it was just an idea, myself and a couple of other educators were the first to really kind of implement, again, these ideas within the Recording Academy. And now the Grammys, you know, they really um, celebrate this type of training for singers. That's, I love that. That's great. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. Oh my gosh, I'm so inspired by this conversation. I'm really thank you, Jamila. I'm inspired by you in this podcast and all that you do. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I just want to encourage singers out there during this time that you know this virus and this plague that we're in it will pass. And um, during this time is a wonderful time to read to continue to educate yourself as singers and as pedagogues and, and to use this time wisely in this, and why we're kind of all staying at home and being responsible to our fellow neighbor and ensuring that, um, you know, we stay healthy. This is the time to just go in and just retool and relearn and recalibrate. Oh, great, wonderful. And where can we find you online? sterlingvoicecoaching.com is my website facebook it's sterling voice coaching or lindia johnson or ms lindia m-z-l-y-n-d-i-a anything you put out there in social media everything about me will pop up <laughs> well this has been brilliant thank you for your time appreciate it thank you for having me be well you too all right, you guys. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Oh, my goodness. So um, let's get into the singing lessons. Number one, make sure your studio is multidimensional. Don't just train pop. Don't just train opera. Don't just train musical theater. Have the facility to train them all and keep them all authentic in their chosen art form. So give them the facility to pivot into different styles. Number two, the voice is a flexible instrument. It can do a myriad of things. Number three, gone are the days of the studios that are teaching one pedagogical approach that is becoming antiquated and ultimately those coaches will find they won't have much business. Number four, this virus and this plague that we're in will pass. This is a wonderful time to read, to continue to educate yourselves as singers and pedagogues and to use this time wisely. And that also just makes me think, um, you know, use the time, use it wisely, or use the time to get the rest you might need. You know, you might have been just like running and running and running and going and feeling crazy. And maybe you just need this time to sit back, to reassess, to read some things that you need to read, um, pull yourself out of the hustle. I, I, I feel like this is probably a time where, you know, if it's genuine for you, to to hustle to you know do all the online concerts that a lot of people are doing to start those courses ta either taking them or giving them um or if it is just genuine for you to sit back and stay offline and read and take the time to fill yourself with you know knowledge and words and make notes and just stuff like that is okay too. You know, I've certainly gone through my periods, not even through this time, but I've gone through periods where I've done a ton of work on something 
I've stayed up late. I've gotten up early. You know, I've spent like a hundred days in a row <laughs> doing something like that. And then I just need my time to, to do nothing and, you know, to um, pull my sanity back together um, or just to regenerate my energy. That's okay, too. Whatever is genuine for you. Um, and if you need to talk to someone, you know, please do that. Please reach out to a friend and, um, you know, talk about your feelings. Don't hold in the tears. Don't hold it, any of it back. Cry if you need to. I had a great conversation with my husband the other day. We've actually been wonderful <laughs> flatmates during this time. We've always been, uh, you know, good uh, about giving each other space and stuff like that. I've heard about people who uh, sort of during this time, their relationships are getting seriously tested. And, um, and you know, we're in a really small apartment. So I think it's a great testament to our relationship that uh, we are able to give each other the space that we need. And, um, but I think that we've always been able to, you know, really do that for each other. That's already kind of been built into the relationship. So he lucky there, <laughs> but if you've got, you know, if, if you've got things you need to get off of your chest, I hope that you have, you know, someone you can do that with email me if you want to say some things, you know, I just try to be a non a non-judgmental space for people because I'm not killing it 24 hours a day. I would love to be one of those people who is, but I am just not. And that is okay. You know, I have had to take several moments and put myself in several seats <laughs> just to rein it back in and feel, feel what I'm feeling and just get to myself, get myself to a centered place. So do that for yourself. Figure out, you know, a way to do that for yourself. Routine is great for that, you know, um, as well. Journaling, meditation, you know, um, prayer, things to get yourself centered, but certainly, you know, getting it out of you and talking and or journaling, I think are wonderful ways to handle what's happening right now. And then walks, you know, getting out into space and time, doing that in the safest way that you can, but um, really caring for yourself physically and mentally, I think, are, are, are what we, you know, what I'm trying to put at my foundation, at the foundation of my self-care. You know, I don't, I don't lecture anybody and I, I don't go on these rants <laughs> on Facebook because everybody's handling things in their own way. And like I said at the, at the top, people get disoriented. You know, you don't know what's going through their head. You don't know what they're worried about. You don't know why they're not present in that moment. Just have mercy and be polite and maybe give somebody a gentle reminder that they are not doing the, the prescribed social distancing because it is important. And, um, you know, I'm starting to see that the losses are getting closer and closer. They're not as far removed as they were a few weeks ago. Um, so it is a serious thing, but also, you know, what's as important is to have mercy on other people and to, you know, understand that they're not, they may not be taking it in the same way that you are. So that's it for today, you guys. So wonderful uh, to connect with you again. Remember to subscribe to the podcast in whatever app you like to listen to. I don't want you to miss any episodes. Follow me on all the social medias. You can find me at Jamila Ford Music or at the Working Singer Podcast. Email me hi at the Working Singer Podcast.com. I love to hear from you. And what else? Oh, visit the Working Singer Podcast.com resource page. I've made a list of resources that I hope can be useful to you, certainly at this time. And this podcast is not monetized, at least at the moment. So, one of the most helpful things that you can do is leave a review if you enjoyed what you just heard. It really does help the podcast to be more findable and to move up in the ranks, especially if you do it in iTunes. So wonderful to connect with you guys again this week. I really hope you're well. Stay safe and, and stay healthy. 
And I love you. I appreciate you. And I will talk to you again next week. registered my company officially in Cook County. I sat at that bank for another year, and then one day I just got up and walked out. If you're a professional singer, want to know how to turn singing into a career, or simply love to hear stories from singers on the road, then The Working Singer is the podcast for you. I chat with pro singers about how they make a creative living in the music business, lending their talent to stars like Enrique Iglesias, The Killers, Elvis Costello, and more. They share life lessons, business advice, and how they make a living when they're off the road. We'll also discuss vocal health, technique, performance, coaching, and pretty much all things vocal. Elevate your approach to your singing career, get enlightened about what the pros do, and be inspired with new ideas that you can make your own. My name is Jamila Ford, and this is the Working Singer Podcast. Welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. I'm sorry this episode is a little late, um, but I have just been dealing with everything that has been going on and just handling life as it comes. You know, I would like to say I've been, you know, super productive this entire time, <laughs> but, you know, just coming to realize that it is okay not to be. These are bizarre times. I guess one thing I was thinking about was I'd just seen a friend's Facebook post and she was talking about how she's fine most of the day and then by the evening she's kind of tired of being strong and feels like a shell of herself and, and wants to cry. And, and, you know, I just kind of responded to her, listen, cry if you want, you know, certainly in your own home, if not there, then where? And if not now, then when? Because stuff is screwed up. And, you know, some of us, I don't know, at least outwardly seem to be killing it. And others are not. <laughs> so, you know, I'm doing okay. My husband's doing okay. But um, I certainly have those uh, moments where I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. And I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay, I got to re-remember what's going on. And this things aren't normal. And you know, I, I have to sort of readjust to the reality of the day. So it is very interesting, but I, I do want to just offer to you that it's okay to not feel all right. And, um, you know, it's okay to feel all right most of the day and then just kind of have a point where you sort of hit a wall and either need to cry or watch Netflix or whatever. You know, I would say it's a great thing to maybe have that person, and I hope you have that person in your life who you can just kind of call and talk to about what you're feeling. Um, I know some of us have lost people in our lives, and some of us have lost job opportunities and things like that. And maybe we think that, you know, some of those things, some of those smaller things aren't worth posting about but I think that um, it's valid to process it I don't think anything is too small at the very least you can call and, and speak with someone I know there's been a lot of shaming too that I see on social media I just wanted to offer up that people do the best that they can you know I know that I have walked out of the house and had to remind myself that we're all keeping our distance I've had to remind myself of that at the grocery store. I've been appreciative of the employees at the grocery store that have said, hey, we're doing the social distancing. Everybody needs to remember that we're doing that. You know, I was at Trader Joe's the other day and there were just a bunch of us there. They're doing a really great job of just letting in so many customers so it's not overcrowded and also it's not, um, the stock isn't depleted when you walk in there. Um, they've gotten a, a nice handle on that. So that's been really nice. But you know, some of us walk out and we, we get a little bit disoriented and the world is odd. So I would just say, you know, have a little mercy on those people who are kind of experiencing this world in a different way and maybe in a way that you're not really experiencing it and that you, 
don't really understand. You know, I had just told my husband the other day, you know, I was watching the Red Table Talk with um, Jada Pinkin, and that's her show on Facebook. And I highly recommend you watch this most recent episode. It was talking about anxiety during this pandemic time. And, you know, they were describing a bit about uh, how it feels to be anxious and, you know, the part of the brain, the amygdala, that is really an overdrive um, for a lot of people right now. That's the fear part of the brain. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's what was happening when I was at the grocery store the other day. I was kind of freaking out, and I was feeling really disorganized. And the scenery was just kind of, ooh, ooh, like... (laughs) It was close and then it was far and I was like trying to orient myself in the space that I was in. It was really strange and I was by myself and and I was just like, I don't know what's happening to me right now. And then I happened to watch this episode of Red Table Talk and I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, they gave some suggestions about, you know, just kind of pulling yourself together when you're experiencing that and having a little process for it. So I highly recommend, you know, watching this episode. If that's something that you've been experiencing, and even if you really haven't, you know, it can help you to understand other people who have been experiencing it. I think, you know, at a sort of certainly a time like this, I know that things are, it's not anything to take lightly. It's a deadly thing, but maybe we can have more compassion for people who are, you know, just a little bit disoriented when they leave the house and aren't quite sure what's going on with themselves and their their minds and their bodies because they haven't experienced something like this before. You know, it is very strange. It's very strange to walk around, drive around and see people with masks on and gloves on and nobody's talking and, you know, somebody could be smiling at you, but you've got no idea <laughs> whether or not they are. And so I'm now, now I'm just kind of like, well, I'm not going to worry about smiling at anybody or anything like that because my mouth is covered. So... And I don't, yeah, you know, that's just kind of an odd little thing. But the other thing that I wanted to offer you guys is, um, and I will put a link of, of this other thing. I think I can put a link of the, the Red Table Talk. And then we'll get to the guest because I really want you to hear what she has to say. Um, is a podcast um, by Mind Valley, and it's hosted by Vishen uh, Lakiani. Um, and it is about finding inner peace during this pandemic. It is such a wonderful reminder of shifting your perspective during a time like this. This is a really wonderful conversation. And I can't remember the guest's name, but I highly, I do highly recommend listening to that conversation. I'm going to put a link in it, a link to it. Um, in the show notes, um, because it was such a wonderful conversation just about shifting your perspective. And it's really not about just think positive thoughts, just think things that may not be true for you. It's really just about, you know, handling reality, dealing with even the good things in your reality, even though, you know, things are kind of, I don't know, sucking right now (laughs) for many of us, you know. Um, So I will offer that to you. And and I, I hope you have a chance to listen to it. And I hope it's something that is helpful and useful to you. Um, at this time, it really did help me. I'd actually listened to it a few times because I know that, and just finding that there were things that I missed, you know, the first and even the second time I listened to it, you know, just things that I, I knew to be true and have come concepts that have come into my life when I've needed them in the past. And honestly, they just could not be more relevant and more useful than right now, at least to me. So links in the show notes, and it is there for you if you need it. Um, Our guest today, I am so excited about you guys. This is something that I know that so many of you can relate to. Being a singer, you know, working, working, working at it, wanting it, tasting it, smelling it living it and it's just not quite happening on the financial front and then you take a day job and you feel like your life is being sucked out of you that is our guest today but she came out of it and she came through it and I am excited for you to hear about how she did that I love 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 the story and I'm just really super excited about you guys hearing it 
My guest today is Lyndia Johnson. Ms. Lyndia is the AKA. <laughs> um, and she's amazing. And I'm just super excited for you guys to hear this. I think I have said excited like four times right now, but that is because it is true. She went from opera singer to being a bank manager to becoming an incredible sought after vocal coach who has so much knowledge and passion for singers. It's just, she's just really amazing. So I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. I will say it 20 more times. Without further ado, Ms. Lyndia Johnson. Lyndia, aka Ms. Lyndia. It is so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. So let's um, get right into it and, and learn a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a town right outside uh, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah, about the 80 miles outside of Philadelphia. And what was life like growing up? Um, you know, I grew up in a really uh, small community in Harrisburg. Um, and um, by a single mom, um, I had uh, two brothers, a sister. Um, we were pretty uh, independent um, family as far as, you know, my mom made sure that uh, we, we could uh, do a lot of things on our own really young because she was a single mom. So, you know, I was doing a lot of housework and cooking and taking care of things, you know, really young, as was my sister and brothers. So we had to be independent, you know. A lot of single moms and dads out there understand that a lot of that has to happen sometimes with kids really young. So, mm. um, you know, um, but we had a really good community. I grew up in a time where uh, it really was a village in our neighborhood. And so we had a lot of neighbors that helped, you know, all the moms in the community who were single moms. And so, you know, I grew up uh, being disciplined by, you know, Miss Ann next door and you know, you know, Miss Miss Shirley and, you know, just, it was a community. What did your um, mom do, by the way? My mom um, um, worked for, um, she had two jobs, actually. Again, very hardworking woman. Um, she worked um, as a nurse's aide um, for the uh, local hospital in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And she also worked um, for the Department of Transportation um, as a custodian and uh, retired from both jobs actually, um, which was amazing, um, but she did. And, uh, but she worked very hard to, to educate us all and to ensure that you know, we really had a, a, a good quality of living and life um, you know, during that time. Wow, that's amazing. So was there music in the house when you were growing up? Uh, from me. <laughs> <laughs> I had brothers that were athletic um, primarily, so um, both my brothers were athletes, but I was the musician and there was music all the time um, from me listening to music from my favorite artists to me singing. Um, I was in my high school marching band, so I played clarinet uh, as well. Um, I studied piano as well. Um, so I was uh, the musical force in, in our household. What led you to wanting to become a singer? You know, I had always sang. Um, like many singers, I found my voice sort of just by experimenting with my own sound and listening to a lot of my favorite singers at that time. You know, all the singers, soul singers of the 70s, and um, R&B singers of the 70s and 80s, and just kind of exploring my own sound through theirs. And that's how a lot of singers actually come into finding their voice. So I wasn't unlike a lot of singers who, you know, discover their own voice through experimenting with their um, current popular singers. And I did that, um, consistently and uh, began to realize that, you know, I wasn't half bad. And then I started singing around in uh, churches in Harrisburg um, with an accompanist and uh, would go from church to church, just singing mm. um, gospel music and uh, really getting a sense of what it was like to sing in that kind of environment as well. 
um, church audiences, particularly in the African-American community, or I guess in all communities, but church audiences can be really tough customers when it comes to music and what they like to hear. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you have to get up there and really kind of just show your chops and, and bring it and bring it the authentically and, and um, with a, as much passion as you can deliver. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that, you know, in my teens up until um, I, uh, a woman actually in one of the churches that I was singing at uh, recommended that I, uh, you know, study voice um, more seriously. And, um, and that's when that part of my journey began. Mm. And then what led you into opera? My first vocal coach um, who um, through a lot of searching me and my mom did a lot of searching and finally discovered um, a wonderful uh, woman who would ultimately change the entire course of my life, actually, Kathleen Lorenz, who um, opened me up in a way that probably changed, like I said, the course of my life completely. She actually heard in me um, what she would always describe as a diamond in the rough. I inherently had a very dynamic voice. And, um, but I was, you know, um, and I was not a, a, a knowledgeable singer. I didn't have any skill. I had a lot of talent, as a lot of singers do, but I didn't have skill. So I didn't understand this instrument, this gift that I had. And so Catherine was very instrumental in um, helping me to not only understand what a skilled singer needs to do, but also what singing was as a responsibility, um, what this gift that I was given was just on a, a level of being responsible for it and managing it well. And um, one day she um, played music for me by um, um, Leontine Price. And I was so just like blown away by the voice and even more blown away by the fact that um, Leontine is African-American. So I immediately just wanted to just become or get as close to that as possible. I mean, I don't think it's humanly possible to replicate Miss Price vocally, but I wanted to come as close as possible. And that began my operatic study with Catherine Lorenz. I was um, 14 years old and she began to, um, you know, teach me Italian and French and German. And I was learning languages under her guidance. She herself was an opera singer. And, and so um, she basically poured into me everything that she had learned herself as an operatic singer. And my voice just blossomed under her guidance. And before I knew it, I was, you know, a bona fide opera singer by the time I was 18 years old. So then what led into your, or how did you navigate singing professionally, getting work and all of that? That's tricky. Um, it was very tricky. Um, I went to, um, you know, when I was with Catherine Lorenz, I uh, did a lot of competitions, uh, National Association of Teachers of Singing Competition. You know, a lot of singers know that as Nats and did well, actually won a, quite a few of them on the, um, you know, high school level before college. Um, and then, you know, for opera, it's, it really does require a lot of intensive study on the collegiate level. Um, Luciana Pavarotti um, kind of went in a different route um, um, as, a, as, a, as an operatic singer. I believe he did not study collegially. But, you know, I knew that that was necessary for me to just kind of you know, be a bona fide opera singer and, and really be taken seriously in the profession. So I auditioned at a lot of universities and um, got into all of them, actually. I was, I got acceptance letters to all the universities I auditioned um, for and ultimately ended up at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia in their College Conservatory of Music. And that's where um, I had to leave Kathleen Lorenz, which was difficult for me and begin to study on a collegiate level with um, 
uh, in the Temple University College Conservatory. So being in Philadelphia, being in that environment, and being in an environment where I was now singing with um, young opera singers who were as good, if not better than I was, that um, upped my game considerably. Opera could be a daunting art form and profession and working consistently in opera can be even more challenging. Um, after I finished undergrad, I went on to graduate studies in Chicago and it was around this time that I realized that my career in opera may not happen. It may not be, it may not be, it may not, I may not be able to sustain a livelihood in the operatic profession, which was devastating to me because I really wanted to, you know, become an opera singer, you know, make a living as an opera singer and live my life as an opera singer. And it just, you know, you know, doors were not opening and it just wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And so I got into a, a season of my life in the early 90s, mid, early to mid 90s, where I was not sure, you know, what was going to happen. I did some roles, Carmen being one of them. Um, I was actually the quintessential Carmen. I did Carmen quite a bit. Um, but ultimately it wasn't paying the bills. And so I was left in this position of, okay, what am I going to do? Because all I know is music, really. So what am I going to do if, if, you know, if this career doesn't launch or take off and I don't pay the bills? And that was uh, around the time in Chicago, a city that became my adopted home, that um, through a lot of um, trial and error, and through the advice of a dear friend of mine who has since passed away um, in Chicago, that I began to reconsider uh, my life as a singer and begin to reinvent myself as a vocal coach. But that was difficult. It, again, I fought that tremendously. Um, but now, 20 some odd years later, I realized that opera or singing and training as an opera singer was just the vehicle to get me to being, you know, a music industry and in a, in a, in a, in a, in a collegiate vocal coach. I actually believe now, like I said, over 20 years later, that opera was just the vehicle that was used to get me to where I'm at. What were you fighting? I didn't want to be an educator. I didn't want to be a coach. I wanted to be a singer. So I was really fighting against that. Um, you know, and it took, like I said, it took a lot of uh, disappointments and a really good friend, like I said, who passed away so young of cancer, mm -hmm. who I went to graduate school with. One day I went to visit her in Chicago um, in the hospital when she was receiving chemotherapy and I was sitting with her and we were talking. And um, I was actually working at a bank at that time and um, to pay the bills. Um, and she looked at me and she said, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, why are you at that bank? And I was like, I have to pay the bills. Singing is not paying the bills. And she said, I cannot believe that you don't see the writing on the wall. And I was thinking, well, what are you talking about? She said, you know, when we were in graduate school, I remember um, every time I had a vocal problem, she said this to me, and every time I had a question about singing or every time, you know, I had something with my voice that wasn't really working right. She said, guess who I would come to? And I said, who? She said, you, silly. And I thought, we were in a pretty decent graduate school program. You had teachers all around you. Why would you come to me to help you with your voice? She said, because you were the kind of singer that not only were you generous in your information and you were such a great singer, but you had a way of explaining the human voice that a lot of our teachers in graduate school just could not do. And I remember always coming to you for singing advice. And that kind of was the pivot for me. And I thought to myself, if my peers saw me as a pedagogue, as a vocal coach, 
how come I couldn't see that for myself? And that was the pivot. And ultimately she passed away uh, less than a year after we had that conversation. But I do remember I went, I didn't go back to the bank right away. I actually went to Cook County, downtown Cook County, and I registered my company, my vocal coaching company, Sterling Voice Coaching. Sterling was my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. And I wanted the company named for him because of the the oral history in our family about who he was um, as, a, as a man um, in the South raising seven daughters in Jim Crow South and what kinds of struggles he had to endure to protect his family in that environment in the 1930s and 40s. And so we have an oral history in our family about Grandpa Sterling and so I wanted my company to bear his name. So I registered my company officially in Cook County, went back to the bank. I sat at that bank for another year. And then one day I just got up and walked out. Wow. And started my company, Sterling Voice Coaching. Um, right. Singer by singer, by singer yeah. one by one. Can I ask you, when you walked into, that, into work that day, did you know you were going to do that? No, um, no, honestly, thinking back, this was around 1998. Mm. No, I walked into work that day. And mind you, this is very interesting. Um, I actually did well at that bank. I was not um, just, you know, I was, I actually excelled at that bank, which always blows me away. Mm. I think that that's just, you know, just who I am. If, I'm, if I've got to be someplace, I'm just going to excel in it. I actually did well at that bank. I actually became like an assistant product manager oh. <laughs> at, the, at that bank. And, and it, uh, you know, so I actually did well. <laughs> but I came in one day and I sat down and um, something in me just kept hearing my, my friend's voice in my head. What are you doing here? Mm. And it was around 10 a.m. and I got up and I went over to my supervisor and said, well, I'm leaving. And, he, and, and she said, it was a female supervisor. And she said, well, where are you going? And I was like, um, to start something new. And I left and she didn't think that I was leaving for good until she walked over to my cubicle and saw that it was empty. <laughs> okay. And she and she said, the cubicle is empty. <laughs> She's really gone. Wow. And I never, and I never looked back. I, I plowed everything I had into Sterling Voice Coaching. I found, um, and, I, and I did creative things in Chicago. And Chicago was the city, actually, that allowed me to explore this concept of vocal coaching um, because one of the things that I was determined I was not going to be was an operatic voice coach. Mm. I really wanted to coach R&B, gospel, pop, rock, which um, led me into a re-education of myself. Mm. I knew opera and I knew how to train in that capacity. But what I wasn't quite sure of, Jamila, was if classical training would transfer over or what I knew about operatic training, yeah. would that transfer into a commercial world um, of singers? And 22 years later and years of research and study and developing my own um, uh, methodologies around the human voice, I can tell you that it can and that it cannot. <laughs> which is what my book is about. Mm. Um, the cross training or crossover artists, singers who, you know, um, sing in one capacity, opera singers who need to pivot into musical theater or pop or pop singers who need to pivot into musical theater or opera. Some of that doesn't translate over. Some, of, some, some vocal coaches need to retrain, re-educate. And so because I was trained so extensively and beautifully as an opera singer, what I learned operatically, most of it would not translate over into a pop R&B gospel 
platform or format. So I had to really recalibrate, readjust, reinvent. Um, and Chicago embraced that and allowed me to do that there. And I have such an affection for that city and the singers of that city because they became, you know, for lack of a better term, they became, you know, they, they, they walked into this laboratory that I created and they became my early test pilots, if you will, to try to see if as an opera singer, I can flip this and train outside of that um, art form. And I have um, developed concepts and studied and, and, and hence this, this has become what people know me as, you know, um, particularly singers who are trying to cross over. That's why I think I was hired at USC. Um, that's what I do at USC. I, I actually exist in two worlds. I live in the popular music department um, and the musical theater department. Mm. But I also have the facility at USC to teach in the operatic department as well. What were you, why not just teach opera since it's what you knew? What drew you to uh, 